she gives a quote near the end of her interview and she says, people don't do drugs because they're happy. Happy people do not do bad things or drugs. People that do drugs and do bad things are not happy people. So even though she talked about it as the best time of her life and that everything was great in the end, you know, people don't do drugs because they're happy. Welcome to episode 10 of the podcast, The 33. In this episode, we will discuss Emmy, one of the 33 individuals that interviewed for Dr. Shukla's book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. And of course, with me today is Dr. Rashi Shukla, professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Oklahoma. And I'm David Nelson, professor of mass communication here at UCO. And today, we will definitely get into a very interesting woman, Emmy. And of course, you mentioned Emmy, Dr. Shukla, in your book quite early in the book. She's a 25-year-old former dealer who found herself associating with what she described as gangbanging groups, later described herself as a very popular schoolgirl, you know, that she was one of the more popular people in school. And of course, she had a very traumatic experience uh, early in her life that may have led to the experience that she had with meth. In addition to all that, what else can you share about Emmy and her life? Well, Emmy um, was the only child of a, at the time, stable parents. They were from Canada, so she was half Canadian. Um, she said she came from a wealthy family. She went to schools with money. She did not have any childhood trauma, and she specifically says that. I had a very good upbringing. But when she was in high school, she experienced a very traumatic event that would then alter the trajectory of her life. And so she said, I was popular at school, but I was harassed. She actually lost her virginity when in, while in high school when she was raped by a by a, by a male. And I, she doesn't specifically say he's a classmate, but it kind of seems like this was someone that was a classmate and it resulted in her um, getting pregnant and having an abortion. And so that was her first encounter with trauma. Um, she tried to file charges, but it took her a little while to come forward, which is not unusual for people that experience trauma and sometimes even sexual assault. And by the time she did come over, there was insufficient evidence to prosecute the case. So she she had kind of responded to this by at that time. And it's something that comes up even later as an adult starting to cut herself mm -hmm. and, you know, self harm herself. And then that's kind of how she got drawn into a gang banging kind of subculture. Um, she mentions in her interview, you know, my family has money. I've been with wealthy school, wealthy people, but I felt that they couldn't protect me and that class couldn't protect me. So I went toward more the gang banging. Because I thought if anyone is going to mess with me, that'd be it. They would protect me. Plus, they understood me because I felt as low as they did. I felt that people in my class wouldn't understand. And mm. so she gets drawn into this other world. And what's interesting is, too, um, with the idea of joining a gang, that she felt safe. You often hear this from those who uh, join gangs is that this is the first time they actually felt like they had a family. 
Right. And Emmy was unique because she was, even though she was, you know, had dual, you know, she was half Canadian. Mm -hmm. She was a Caucasian female and she's one of the only people in my entire project of people that I interviewed who mentions a partner who is a black American or is black. So she was Caucasian and her boyfriend, her boyfriend who then becomes her husband, who at the time of the book is her ex-husband now, who was serving time in our maximum facility in the state of Oklahoma, which is McAllister for his gangbanging activities. You know, it was her being drawn to him and seeking out as an only child, seeking out somebody who she felt like she was in love with that really pulled her into that lifestyle. The first time I ever did it, I was terrified. And when I, I sniffed it up my nose and after that first hit, I wanted more and more. Dr. Shukla, Emmy first used meth the first time around 16 years of age. But prior to that, she, you know, of course, experienced cannabis, alcohol, not at great lengths, just trying it here and there. Can you tell us a little bit more about her family background and her involvement with meth? Yeah, um, Emmy was, you know, again, she was an only child. Um, her parents eventually separated and there's some, some again, negative trauma that happens later with her father. But, you know, at the time of her interview, she was a divorced mother of two. She had a four-year-old son and she had a four-month-old daughter. Her use and involvement with meth is similar to other people in a number of ways and also somewhat unique. Um, she was 16 when she first tried it and she tried it during this period of heavy experimentation at 16 and 17, which is not unusual, um, just like many people, she loved it immediately, progressed to regular, daily, all day, every day use eventually. Um, you know, and and her progression went from like days, you know, from, you know, once in a while to weeks to days in a very short amount of time. Um, and she would be up for days and sometimes weeks at the height of her use. Mm. She used meth to the point you know, and she also had cocaine use in there too, but meth was really what she preferred to cocaine because it lasted longer. It was cheaper and it was just a better fit for her. But she used meth up to the point where, as I think we've talked about it before, but where she had a ho holes in her nose, mm. like inside of, you know, the inner part of your nose that separates your nose. I'm sure there's a medical word for it, but she had developed holes. The drug had actually eaten through that. And so even when we had at the time of interview, you know, she had that. She sold a lot of drugs. She was, again, a Caucasian female in this gang culture. And she really did a lot of drug dealing, mostly to white consumers, males and females, but she hung around with, as a result of her ex-husband, this other subculture of people that were heavily involved in crime. Um, she barely dabbled in cooking. You know, there's something that people have talked about a little bit and even Mark Woodward, who we talked to in our last episode years ago, people talked about burying chemicals to make a meth-like substance. And my colleague, Miriam Boeri, um, she had researched it and written articles about this bearing of chemicals. She talks about that bearing of chemicals. And, you know, I am not an expert on it. We actually tried to get a professor here at UCO to do it once, a chemistry professor, and we couldn't duplicate what people said mm. they were doing. But it's showing up in law enforcement the literature that some people are bearing chemicals. Well, she admitted to doing that a few times, but it was very apparent from her interview that she had been around meth cooking of others. Mm -hmm. You know, she talks about being in the room and the the ventilation, you know, the the all the air being blocked off and trying not to breathe and, you know, having to be quiet. And so it 
I have no doubt that she was around meth cooking, you know, but her own involvement was mostly, you know, watching, participating and being involved in selling product. But again, she was unique in the sense that she was really one of the only people that I ever interviewed that talked about methamphetamine among a black or African-American population. You know, my subjects with the a few exception of maybe, you know, someone like Felix, who was Hispanic, you know, were Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And yet here I had this young Caucasian woman in front of me who was talking about her ex being a heavy, heavy meth addict. And that was never a population that I tapped into in my research. Nobody put a gun to my head, you know. I am my own person. I make my own decisions, and I didn't have to do it. One thing interesting about Emmy, she took full responsibility for her decisions. She even said in your book, look, I made the decision to use meth, and no one's putting a quote-unquote gun to my head. So... She, again, takes full responsibility for making these choices. She doesn't think anybody peer pressured her, even though she does contradict herself a little bit in your book when she does say that she felt like she took maybe the first attempt at using meth because there were other people taking it. But she also shared a story where she had other opportunities why other people were using meth, but chose not to. Right. So she was very interesting in that aspect. But when she did first try meth, she said, quote unquote, in your book, the best time of my life. This is a theme that we've heard yes. so far uh, between uh, all those that we've at least to, to this point in the podcast have talked about. Correct. Correct. This euphoric feeling. Correct. And, you know, um, not everybody who uses meth becomes a heavy user instantaneously. But, Mm -hmm. you know, one of my favorite words is the word Rubicon, which is a line that once you cross, you don't go back. And for at least some people, and especially those people who become heavily immersed in the lifestyle at young ages, like, you know, Emmy, she was only 25 when I interviewed her and she'd already gotten out of the life at that point. But for some people, the first time they try meth is a Rubicon. It is their lives divide into before and after, and there's never anything that's the same. Um, Emmy, you know, really went into drugs because she didn't want to be alone. And it was very much a social draw. And she talked about that first time being terrified of it. She didn't want to do it. In fact, she cried before she did it. And when I asked her, you know, did you feel pressure? Did you feel like someone was making you? It was, again, drawing through through her boyfriend, which it's sad, but it's not unusual for young women to be drawn into drug lifestyles through the male partners that they have boyfriends specifically, you know? And so it was a boyfriend who really tried to get her into it. And she had previously lost boyfriends because she's like, no, I don't want drugs. So at this point she's like, I'll do it. And she literally says, screw this shit. And she says, I'm going to do it. (laughs) She sniffed it the first time. And she said, she really, really liked it. And as soon as she used it, she was like, that's fear I had just went away. Mm. And, um, but she said, nobody forced me. I, no one put a gun to my own head. I am my own person. I make my own decisions. And one thing I want, you know, anybody that's listening to this to kind of keep in mind, it's not a normal thing to be like, you know, no one necessarily put a gun to my head. Yeah. People say that, but Emmy comes from a lot of trauma 
And, you know, some of the things we're probably going to talk about here in a little bit. So, yes, she did make a decision. She does call it the best night of her life. But then she goes on to say that she almost hit a semi truck driving home from the mm. party that night, you know, and could have died. So there's a disconnect in Emmy that maybe we'll touch on in a little bit about. But, yeah, she definitely reflected on it as one of the best nights of her life and became a regular user very, very quickly. listening to episode 10 of the podcast, The 33, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. It's a book written by my co-host, Dr. Rashi Shukla, professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Oklahoma. And I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, professor of mass communication right here at UCO. In today's episode, we are talking about Emmy. She's a 25-year-old former meth dealer who described herself as a very popular middle-class uh, student in high school and uh, that she came from a stable home. But by the age of 16, she tried meth and she was hooked. So we continue her story. It's always a choice. It's a choice for them. You know, it's a choice for somebody that's smoking. Yeah, you're addicted, but you can choose to stop if you really want to stop. You can stop, you know. Dr. Shukla, Emmy says she never really felt addicted. And that, of course, as we mentioned earlier, no one put a gun to my head, as she would say. And she often used that phrase. But what can you share about Emmy and her view on being not addicted, even though clearly, clinically, she would be described as an addict? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've thought about that a lot because I struggle with this idea of where does decision making and choice fit in with addiction? You know, and Emmy, I, I tried to think about why would Emmy say she wasn't addicted? And what I've come up with is because she eventually stopped without rehab, without counseling. She stopped on her own and she was able to stop at times. For example, when she got pregnant with her first child at that time, she stopped using even though she was with her, you know, at that time, husband, but now ex-husband who was heavily using. And then she was watching him spiral. So I think it's because she was able to stop and stopped at times. But one of the things I want people to understand is that, you know, just because she was able to stop and says I wasn't an addict doesn't mean she wasn't. She got to the point where she was using methamphetamine all day, every day, all the time. Her relationship with her ex-husband revolved around meth. They were always using it all the time together. And so, again, that's not controlled use. You know, nobody would say using a drug all day, every day. And it goes a step further when people become that heavily immersed in an addiction, they start living differently. So Emmy goes from this life that was very stable, has this traumatic experience of this rape, and then catapults into this very chaotic, traumatic life. Um, and it, in the end, it impacts every aspect of her life. She finds herself living in motels, you know, making tons of money, not having anything to show for it, you know, wasting money instead of paying bills. She talks about apartments with cockroaches. She was arrested four times. And thankfully, in her case, she escaped the life without a conviction, you know, but she herself became involved with crime, you know, drugs, um, counterfeit money at some point, stealing drugs, you know, all kinds of shady behaviors. And she lived this very unstable, 
non-secure life. And so she clearly went into addiction. Now, again, reflecting back on why she would say it was a choice, because at some point, eventually, and at different times, she stopped on her own without help. But she definitely lost control and wasn't, wasn't lived in addiction for a period of time. Can you recall with the other people you interviewed, whether or not it was rehab that assisted them to uh, recover or was a large percentage of them very much like Emmy where they stopped on their own? You know, it's, it's, it's a good question because we've tried to work on this for like papers and things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I can say is, and I'll, I'll answer your question, but regardless of what the factors are that eventually help someone get quit, get clean, which is, you know, again, usually rehab or religion or family bonds. One thing that I've learned in my interviews with these, with all of these 33 people is at the end of the day, there has to be a decision. So Emmy's not wrong in saying I made a decision because all the treatment, all the counseling, all the rehab in the world isn't going to help an, an addict unless he or she has decided that they're going to accept it, no matter if that happens before, during, or after their time of getting help. At the end of the day, that decision to quit is critical for anybody, but a lot of people find God, they go to treatment, they go to rehab facilities, they join AA or NA. You know, there's a lot of paths out of methamphetamine, but choice is definitely a big one. And he took me out of the car in the ditch and beat the shit out of me. And people had to pull him off me. I didn't even feel it, you know. I wanted to fight. I was ready to go. <laughs> but I didn't feel it. Emmy was not immune to the violence that often is present in the meth world. Even at one point, she describes how her ex-husband nearly killed her twice. What can you share about her story and spousal abuse in this very violent world that she was experiencing? And also, what other violence did she experience with uh, male relationships in her life? Well, um, as we've talked about before, Emmy marries into somebody that's heavily a meth addict, and she describes him as somebody who's very abusive, both physically and emotionally. And this was somebody that exerted control on her to the point where he wouldn't even let her have, you know, drugs herself. He would control the drugs and he would control the money. So even though she would be out selling and things, this was definitely a controlling relationship with a very violent criminal person who was engaged in all kinds of in activities. But I remember being a little shocked when she says, you know, my ex tried to kill me twice. And the first time it's interesting because she says he was kind of off meth. I don't know if that means he was actually off meth or he wasn't really off meth. But at that time, and one of the things I want to make sure I point out is Emmy was one of the people who would always provide a self explanation for why somebody would be violent against her. Mm. So she was like, when she talks about the first time, she was like, I was talking shit and I'm very big about that. I'm very opinionated, expressive person. And at that time she started talking to her ex and again, in her, in her own words, talking shit. And she said her ex picked her up, snapped his back, threw her on the ground, covered her mouth. I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't scream. I couldn't breathe. His eyes were black and he wasn't high. 
And at that point, a friend hears her because they lived on top and he lived down. I guess it was an apartment. And the friend runs up, knocks on the door and eventually bursts through the door. And she says, if it wasn't for him, I probably would have been dead. Did I stay? Yes. So that was time number one. The second time, now she makes a distinction. He was high. And she said he was gone. This was the worst he'd ever been. He'd probably been up for days, weeks, months. I don't know. He held me hostage in my own living room. It was like he was two different people. It was indescribable. And it's interesting because as she's reflecting on this story and making recollections about it, she says, I even made my mom come and get my kid and my dog, but I stayed. So she knew he was not in a good place and she was of sound mind enough to send her child and animal away, but not to leave herself, which is really sad and fascinating. And so she says, how stupid is that? And she said that her ex accused her of sleeping with a guy that was the heroin addict. That was their friend. And her explanation for that is that sometimes her ex would come home in other people's clothes. So this other person, another male's boxers, boxer shorts happened to be at mm. the house. So he wakes up from this drunken stupor at some point, sees another man's boxers and is like, you're mm -hmm. sleeping on me. Um, and so basically he freaked out and he held a knife to her throat and he basically ends up holding her hostage in their own apartment for four hours. Mm. And she says he would fall asleep in the chair because he was so high. Then he'd wake up and see her crying and go, what's wrong? Are you okay? You know? And so I can't even imagine what this four hour period is where you are in fear for your life where there's, you know, danger, there's a knife literally being held to your own throat and you're having to not know if you're going to live or die. And that was just the two times that she mentioned almost being killed by the ex. There's other violence in her life still. And that would be um, her relationship with her father. What was that like? Well, she talked about, you know, that she doesn't mention this until much later, but eventually her parents get divorced. Mm -hmm. And she mentions that her father worked in the oil fields and was gone a lot and ends up cheating on the mom. Mm -hmm. And at that point, she, her view of the mom, you know, of the dad starts to change. But she talked about literally saying that she herself held a knife to her own father's throat multiple times when he would try to stop her from doing something she wanted to do, which was pretty much her wanting to go be around her druggy friends. Mm. So I don't know when this happens in the course of this, but she herself is holding a knife to her father. And at the time of our interview, Emmy was with a man who I can't make this up. It was a man that was friends with her in high school, but was also friends with the man who had raped her as a child. And the man who had allegedly raped her, I should say, had died by this point. Well, this relationship she's in now, not only does she say, you know, this man doesn't know me at all versus this love of her life that's incarcerated, you know, that really ended up destroying her life. But she talks about violence with him. You know, she engages in violence with every man in her life, it seems like. And I'm not saying she's, you know, the offender. And, you know, we know when we, when we learn about offenders and victims, there's an overlap. People go from being victims to offenders and both. And, you know, so she describes violence, not only past, but around the time that we did our interview. Amelia, authorities are worried that these counterfeit drugs could be making their way into unsuspecting hands. What's causing a serious concern, though, is the black market pills often contain dangerous drugs like fentanyl and meth. 
more than 9.5 million counterfeit pills have been seized this year, and that's more than the last two years combined. Well, Emmy kept going back to these abusive relationships, but this was not her only risk of being killed. Uh, she also feared being killed by those she was selling fake dope to. Correct. Uh, so share a little bit about that risk and also about the risks that she took during the time she was immersed in this meth lifestyle. Well, you know, we know that people cut drugs. You know, drugs come into the country pure, not always pure, but often pure. And the, the further away they get from the source, the more people put different cut into them, you know, mm -hmm. ingredients to try to water it down and obviously make more money. Um, well, Emmy kind of learns to play this game where she can get like, you know, codeine or some other substances that might give people kind of a feeling that they're getting high, but they're not sure. Cause just think about in the underground market, you don't ever know if what you're getting is what you think you're getting. Nobody knows what they're about to take. And so she actually comes up with this way of making fake dope and selling it. And, you know, she talked about being afraid of being killed, not only because of selling fake dope, but because of selling a lot of dope, you know, anybody that has that much meth is probably at risk. And she described a time where her ex sold fake dope to somebody. The person came back with a gun and said, hey, you know, you sold me fake dope. I'm going to kill you. And then her ex-husband beat the crap out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, so she had seen violence with regard to these types of sales. And so yet you do it at a time when you need to, to get the money to keep you know, building up your sales, but that clearly wasn't all she was involved in. You know, she would steal things and she talked about going to every dollar general or Walmart that she could stealing from every gas station. She would steal things and then play the system to return them either for credit or for cash. She learned how to scam food, you know, order food and say it's bad. Um, she sold a lot of drugs. She got involved with counterfeiting with her ex. Like she really became immersed in this risky criminal lifestyle. And again, it's very um, good on her, in her looking back on her life that she didn't have convictions coming out of this lifestyle. But she was engaged in a lot of deviant and criminal behavior that could have put her at risk, not just legally, but within the black, black market world in which drugs operate. I wish that I could be in different circumstances in myself. You know, when people get off drugs, they have to find themselves. It's one of the hardest things you ever have to do, and I'm still doing it. So how was Emmy coping with this new lifestyle? So we may describe it a clean lifestyle. Statistically, there is a large amount of recovering addicts who return to the lifestyle that she described as exciting and all the highs. She even talked about that is probably her most exciting portion of her life. And that even now in a clean lifestyle, she says it's difficult. It's hard. I've had a lot of low and difficult days clean. What else did you learn about Emmy as she's in this new period of her life of recovery? You know, she, there was a lot of disconnect in her responses, you know, mm -hmm. she'll say in one, literally in response to a question, it was the best time in my life. And then two sentences later, or two paragraphs later, she'll be like, it ruined my life. 
She'll say, I loved my life, you know, her life with her ex-husband. She said, I loved him. I love, I still love him more than anyone, no matter what anybody thinks. But then she'll say it was abusive, you know? And so there's this disconnect in there, but she definitely was very bright and she knew what she was talking about. She loved the fun of what she called life on the edge or being edgy, you know, and the thrill of not getting caught. That's the one thing that some people don't understand. The thrill of this lifestyle is part of what makes it so attractive and so addictive to some people. And I remember at one point I had a conversation with somebody and they were like, where people miss out when they respond to drug treatment, when you're trying to help someone who's recovering from addiction, is it's not just the drug that draws you into it. It's the whole lifestyle. It's the excitement. And, you know, Emmy's not the first and not the last to talk about the thrill of living life on the edge. And now at the time of her interview, she calls about being, you know, having depression. And some of that could be, you know, neurological, biological, you know, physiological. After you flooded your brain receptors with dopamine, then all of a sudden it's gone. But she says, you know, I'm pretty much I live a boring life. I'm a stay at home mom of two. She has a four year old and a four month old. You know, there's not a lot of, you know this kind of lifestyle excitement that she had. And she talks about depression. She talks about starting cutting again at some point. At the time of our interview, she was no longer cutting, but even after she escapes the lifestyle, she goes back to cutting and even talks about cutting as being addictive, which I know very little about that kind of self-harm and cutting, but in her own words, that was something that she, she viewed as addictive. And she had some suicide attempts. You know, at one point she had overdosed on drugs. She had tried to slit her wrists. Her most recent suicide attempt had been a a year earlier. So after she already had this young child and so life is hard and, you know, she hadn't talked to her ex that was in prison. She obviously doesn't want a lot to do with him, even though she still calls him the love of her life. But now she has this I'm assuming he's beautiful because most four-year-old boys are beautiful, but she has this beautiful four-year-old boy who looks exactly like her ex and she has to navigate life with him. And so, you know, reconnecting in this new world, she was in university at the time we talked. Interestingly enough, she was interested in criminal justice and psychology, you know, and really trying to help, you know, people. And she could very well succeed at that. Sometimes people that come from these lifestyles are some of the best at trying to respond to it in their professional world later. One of the things I I wanted to make sure that I shared in terms of her, her explanation and her reflections is she, she gives a quote near the end of her interview. And she says, people don't do drugs because they're happy. Happy people do not do bad things or drugs. People that do drugs and do bad things are not happy people. So even though she talked about it as the best time of her life and that everything was great in the end, you know, people don't do drugs because they're happy. just listened to episode 10 of the podcast, The 33. And today we took a look into Emmy's life on meth. In the next episode, we will talk specifically about Stephen, another one of the 33 that Dr. Shukla interviewed for her book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. Join us then as we look into the darkness of those who battled with their addiction 
to myth. Until then, thank you for joining us.